I would invite you this morning to Genesis chapter 7, Genesis chapter 7, and we will continue in our study of the book of Genesis. And as you turn there, um, I'd invite you to consider what happens when an artist destroys his creation. The kind of thing that I have in mind is the kind of thing that Franz Kafka ordered regarding his, his uh, works at his death. Uh, I found an article this week that related how during his lifetime, I'm quoting now from this article, during his lifetime, Franz Kafka burned an estimated 90% of his work. After his death, at age 41, in 1924, a letter was discovered in his desk in Prague addressed to his friend Max Brod. Dearest Max, it began, my last request, everything I leave behind me in the way of diaries, manuscripts, letters, my own and others, sketches and so on, to be burned, unread. And of course, this fellow Max Broad, he did not burn Kafka's writings. Maybe you think the world would be a better place if he did. But he didn't burn Max, uh, Franz Kafka's writings. This fellow Max Broad, he, es he escaped from uh, Czechoslovakia before the Nazis came in. And he saw to the publication of uh, Kafka's uh, writings that were left unpunished, uh, un unpublished at his death. But consider what would have happened... And what did happen to that other 90% of what Kafka wrote? No one enjoyed it, and no one even knows that it was there. And then consider that last command of Kafka, that all that remained be burned. Well, he gave that command, but he couldn't guarantee the fulfillment of that command. He died, and he was gone, and his wishes were and have been disregarded. Well, in our text, God gave a command that the world would be destroyed, that all the living would be blotted out, and God saw it done. And in this passage, the way that, that the, the passage is presented to us, it's as though uh, Moses is showing us that the waters that were separated so that the dry, la dry lands could appear are unseparated. The world that was created, the dry lands that were created, the people that were made, the world is uncreated and unmade when God unseparated the waters. But with, with the artist God who destroyed his creation, he brought it all back to life. And that's one of the reasons I think that this passage is an appropriate text for us to study on Easter Sunday. Because after the death that God brought into the world, he renewed life. He brought life, all, all creation back to life. And as I was thinking about this reality that we see with respect to the flood, I thought to myself, well, what, why did God need Noah? God created Adam. Why did he decide to save Noah? Why save Noah and why save those animals? And I think there are at least two good reasons for God to do this. One good reason that God saved Noah through the ark instead of just wiping him out with all the rest of creation or perhaps waiting until he died and then, and then bringing the flood. But one good reason for saving Noah is to show the way that faith saves. 
God warned Noah of what would happen, and then he gave instructions to Noah that because Noah believed those instructions, he built the ark, and by grace through faith, as we saw last week, Noah was saved. And so Noah and all those with him on the boat were saved. And so by saving Noah, God builds into this story of the world this, this reality that faith saves. Another good reason, I think, that God, that we can surmise why God would save Noah is so that Noah could testify. Noah could attest that there was a pre-flood creation, and Noah could tell his descendants of the way that people filled the world with violence, Genesis 6, 11, and, and then God brought a flood to judge it. So Noah testifies, and then through the line of his son Shem, Shem lives to tell of all that Noah had done. Now, before we go into the text of Genesis chapter 7, I want to make some broader sort of uh, biblical theological observations about, about the, the contribution that the flood story makes to the whole story of the Bible. <clears throat> and, and the first place I want to go is to the exodus from Egypt, because the, the same language that you read here, particular language, language that is not all that common in the rest of the Old Testament, um, like there's this strange word for dry land that is used here in, in Genesis 7 when it says that the dry lands were overwhelmed by the waters, is also used to describe the people of Israel crossing the Red Sea on dry land. And then in the same way that, that the waters covered the mountains, we're going to read here in Genesis chapter 7, the waters covered the Egyptians when they tried to go through the Red Sea. And by presenting this to us, I would suggest to you that the author of Genesis, who is the same author as the author of Exodus, Moses, he is trying to forge a connection in our minds between the flood, the waters of the flood, the, the waters of judgment, through which all of Noah's contemporaries were destroyed, and the waters of the Red Sea, through which the Israelites were saved, and all of the enemies of Israel were destroyed. And then in the New Testament, um, Paul speaks of the waters of the Red Sea as waters of baptism when he speaks in 1 Corinthians 10 of the people of Israel being baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And then similarly with that, Jesus in Mark 10.38 and Luke 12.50 spoke of his death as a baptism. And you'll probably recall that often when, when we have the opportunity to baptize someone here at Kenwood Baptist Church, I will talk about how in the Old Testament, the, the flood becomes a kind of metaphorical way of describing God's judgment. So that across the rest of the Old Testament, you can read in places like Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 11 of how enemy armies, you also get this in Psalm 124, enemy armies are likened to floodwaters because the only time that enemy armies can overcome Israel is when they've sinned against God and God is bringing them against Israel in judgment. And so the Assyrians, for instance, are like a flood that's going to overflow all its banks and, and pass through and be like a flood that, that, that destroys all in the land. And then Jesus comes along and he speaks of the outpouring of God's wrath on him at the cross as a baptism that he has to undergo. And when we place our faith and hope in Christ 
And when we go under the waters of baptism, we are being identified with him in his death and resurrection by faith. So that as we go under the waters, it symbolizes our death with Christ, our union with Christ in his death. As we come up out of the waters, it symbolizes our resurrection with Christ, our being raised to life in him. So you have the flood, then you have the Red Sea, then you have the baptism of Jesus and the baptism of Christians, all partaking of this flood imagery, and then you also have the second coming. And I want to read to you, uh, uh, Randall has read earlier from Matthew chapter 24, I want to read to you what Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Peter's describing the way that God caused the waters to be separated so that the dry lands could appear. And then verse 6, and that by means of these, the waters of creation, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So Peter is drawing a clear comparison between the waters of the flood that destroyed the first creation, so to speak, and the fire that is going to destroy the world at the second coming. And then he says, But do not over overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And he continues. So the flood is very significant in the whole story of the Bible. It informs uh, what happened to that first world. It, in, it, it informs God's salvation of Israel at the Exodus. It informs the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus and our union with him. And then it informs the return of Christ at the end of all things. That's really, in some ways, the, the whole story of the Bible, isn't it? Creation flood, uh, Christ, and we can put in there the, the destruction of Israel on the way, and then our salvation in Christ, and then his return to judge the wicked. So with this in view, let's look together at Genesis chapter 7 and what Moses seeks to teach us here. Uh, in the first five verses of this chapter, uh, Moses presents Noah to us as righteous and obedient. So if you want to take notes, you could write down Genesis 7, 1 through 5, Noah, righteous and obedient. So look at Genesis chapter 7, verse 5. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark. And if you want to, if you want to see how things fit sort of in context, if you look over at chapter 8, verse 15, God said to Noah, go out from the ark. So God tells Noah to go in. In 7, 1, he tells him to come out in 8.15, the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, and then, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this 
generation. So the Lord sees that Noah is righteous, and we've talked about this. I don't think this means that Noah had never sinned or had never committed any iniquity. Uh, as we observed last week in 8.21, after the flood, the Lord is going to again acknowledge that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So that includes Noah. Noah's a sinner, but because of his faith, he's being reckoned righteous, I would argue. And there's a contrast in 7.1 between the way that the Lord sees that Noah is righteous and what he saw in, in 6.12. God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. And also 6.5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. But he also sees Noah's faith, Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord reckons him to be righteous. Uh, look down at 7.5, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. That's like 6.22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And the only reason anyone does what God's command, God commands is because they believe what God says. We talked last week about how how strange and bizarre these instructions would have been. Build this massive boat, Noah, uh, for this worldwide flood, the like of which no one has ever seen, the, 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 the idea of which is going to seem preposterous, but because Noah believes God, he builds the ark. So Noah is righteous by faith in 7.1, and he does everything that God commands. He obeys in 7.5. Uh, and then notice... At the end of verse 1 there of chapter 7, I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. I think that's a key phrase in the Bible, in this generation. Uh, one, one other place where that same phrase is used, I think informed by, by this text, is Philippians chapter 2, when Paul says, and here this is application for us, right? Philippians 2.14, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I think Paul is, is encouraging Christians to be like Noah, shining as lights in the midst of a, a wicked and depraved generation. And then Jesus used that phrase, this generation, in that comment when he said, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. I think Jesus is referring to the, the kind of people that are sinners, the seed of the serpent, the people that are going to reject the knowledge of God. But God sees Noah righteous before him in this generation, and Noah does, 7-5, everything that the Lord had commanded. Between 7-1 and 7-5, there, there's a, a, an interesting structure that's going to be repeated in this chapter. In verse 2, the Lord tells Noah, Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. Uh, we were talking about this in family devotions, and um, someone asked, Why do you think the Lord uh, encouraged or commanded Noah to take seven pairs of clean animals? And I, the, the commentators say, and I think this is correct, probably because Noah is making preparation for the sacrifices that will be offered, the, the sacrifices of clean animals that will be offer, offered while he's on the, on the boat and when he gets off, whereas the unclean animals, they won't be offered up in sacrifice. And then verse 3, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, birds were also used in sacrifices, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive. So the Lord is preserving seed alive on the face of the earth. 
And then he tells him in verse 4, For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. So in 7, 1 through 5, Noah is righteous and obedient. In some ways we get a, a, a sort of same, psalms, same song second verse in 7, 6 through 10, where we see that the instructions are obeyed. Uh, look at verse 10 to begin, begin with where we read, I'm sorry, it's verse 9, uh, where Noah, as God had commanded Noah, verse 9, 2 and 2, male and female went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. That statement at the end of verse 9 is a lot like that statement that we just saw in verse 5. Uh, verse 6 tells us, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. And then here come the animals again, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. So the, the Information in 7, 1 through 5 in some ways is repeated with some new elements added in that Noah was 600 and that after seven days the waters came in 7, 6 through 10. Uh, let me offer you a point of application that is again a text of Scripture. Proverbs 22, 3. Proverbs 22, 3 says, The prudent sees the danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. This is what Noah has done. Noah has acted prudently. He has heard of the danger, he has seen that it is coming, and he hides himself. In 7, 11 through 16, the flood begins, and again, it's almost as like, almost as though we're going to get uh, same song, third verse here. So, so very, very similar presentation of information. Look down at verse 16. And those that entered, male and female, of all, the of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. So we get a statement like that in 7.5, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. 7.9, as God had commanded him. 7.16, as God had commanded him. And that's all flowing out of 6.22, Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. So there's a stress in the text on the way that Noah responded to the Lord with obedient faith. 7.11, chapter 7, verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, the fountains of the great deep burst forth. Now, you know, as we, as we think about this, as we think about the entirety of the globe being covered with water, I think we cannot begin to imagine the amount of water coming out of the fountains of the great deep. But even today, there are these massive fissures in the world's oceans, and water is streaming up into the oceans out of those massive fissures in the earth's core. And so, you know, I don't know what all happened in terms of the, the plate tectonics. Some people have suggested that that perhaps there was, there was one massive continent, and that's why the, the shape of the continents even today almost looks like it could fit together. And, and what the Lord did at the time of the flood was he fundamentally reshaped the entirety of the, the earth's surface. 
And, and perhaps this could explain why, I mean, you know, today we have these, these uh, Himalayan peaks that are nearly 30,000 feet in height. Well, perhaps at the time of the flood, there weren't, you didn't have mountain peaks like that, that these resulted from the shifts and the movement in the earth's core. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just telling you what, what I've heard suggested. And um, at other times, it's, it's been suggested that, that uh, in Genesis 1, we read of the Lord separating the waters above from the waters below. And, and right here in this verse, 7:11, we read, the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. So it's been suggested that perhaps there was this canopy of waters above the earth, and that the windows of heavens were open, and that canopy is emptied onto the earth's surface, and it, it fundamentally alters the, the atmosphere and the climate, resulting in a very changed world after the flood. I don't know what all went into this, but uh, the text is, is very descriptive. We, we read here in verse 12, The rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, the day that apparently that the floods broke open, the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened, the very same day, verse 13, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with him entered the ark. They, and here come the animals again, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. You know, another thing I think we see here about the character of God is something that is, that is really testified to throughout the Bible. Um, you see it in the Psalms, when the Psalms speak of how even the sparrow finds a home at the house of God. You hear it from the Lord Jesus when he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and yet not one of them falls to the earth apart from the will of your Father. And, and you see it in the book of Jonah, when the Lord rebukes the prophet, saying, there's much cattle in Nineveh, and the Lord doesn't want to destroy all that life. What you see is God's concern for what he's made, God's love for what he has made. You see into the character of God that though there is a need for justice, a need for his wrath to fall, he wants to preserve life. So they enter the ark, verse 19, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And then the next verse, verse 16, and those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God, command, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. And we can reflect here on the way that the ark brought Noah safely through the destruction of the old and into life in the new. And this is a lot like faith in Christ. This is like our believing that Christ died and rose from the dead. Entering the ark is a little bit like entering the church. And this is the kind of thing I think that Peter has in mind in 1 Peter chapter 3, when again he speaks of, of the flood. And he says this, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, of the way that, verse 18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death, but made alive. And then he speaks of, of these, these spirits who formerly disobeyed to whom Christ went and made proclamation. I think that Peter is talking about 
uh, those, those spirits, those sons of God that we read about at the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, who, who took wives from the daughters of men. And I think what Peter is saying is that Christ went and proclaimed his victory over these, these disobedient spirits. And then he, he says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So Peter seems to be saying that, that our baptism into Christ corresponds to the way that Noah was brought safely through the waters, the waters of judgment, on the ark. Not because baptism removes dirt from our bodies, Peter says, but because by faith we appeal to God for a good conscience, trusting what Christ has done for us. So the flood begins. And then in the closing section of this chapter, Genesis chapter 7, in Genesis 7, 17 through 24, we read of the mighty waters. And I would just invite you to imagine, if you can, the amount of water, and, and realize that this water is not standing still. These are not like placid waters of a pond where no winds blow and no currents uh, are, are at work. This would have been raging water. This would have been water in motion. And, and a few years ago, I, I had the opportunity to go with a, a group to the Grand Canyon, and I was with uh, believing geologists and scientists, and they were proposing that this massive canyon was forged by a, a, a vast amount of water moving rapidly. And they took us up to this plateau that consisted of, of this silt that looked like it had all been moved from some other location to this place where it now resides. And it's this huge layer of, of of, of dirt, the kinds of things that, the kinds of material that water moves that, that, that was deposited there at, at, at the fount of the place where the canyon seems to have been cut. So this, this water of the flood, it would have been raging water, moving very fast, moving huge, massive boulders and, and amounts of sediment. And we read here in Genesis 7, 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased. Uh, the term rendered increased here is the term that's been uh, used elsewhere to describe the, uh, the, the, the making great, the, the, uh, the, 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 the multiplying. The waters multiplied. And then in the middle of verse 17, and bore up the ark. Perhaps you've been to the Ark Encounter in northern Kentucky. It's, it's worth going just to see the spectacle. This massive boat that's longer than a football field in, in length. It, it's a, we're talking about a huge ship. And, and can you imagine this huge ship constructed on dry land, and then there is so much water that that thing is lifted off the ground. Can you hear the, the creaking of that wood as the waters begin to cause it to rise off the earth? The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. And then verse 18, the waters are described as a mighty man. In, in the Old Testament, there's this, 
this, this verb, this uh, gavar, that is sometimes used as a noun, gibor, and a gibor is a mighty man in battle. And, and the waters here are, are described as though they are giborim, they are mighty men. The waters prevailed, that is, the waters conquered. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And then when it says here in verse 18 that the ark floated on the face of the waters, the text literally, it uses a verb that describes walking. The ark walked on the face of the waters. So the, the waters are prevailing, but the ark is walking, traversing its path across them. Verse 19, and the waters prevailed. This, this phrase is going to keep getting repeated. Verse 18, the waters prevailed. Verse 19, the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Verse 20, the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Perhaps this is not 30,000 feet high. Perhaps it's, you know, again, perhaps uh, the mountains, those mountains were in the process of being formed as this flood is happening. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Verse 21, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. And there's going to be a progression through this verse. And this progression is going to match the progression of Genesis 1, the progression that we see at creation. We read here of, of birds and livestock and beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. So the same way that God first creates the animals and then man in the flood, all flesh dies and then we move through the animals and then man dies. Verse 22, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing. The Bible does not shy away from the fact that this was God's judgment. He blotted out. And then back in verse 4, again, I will send rain on the earth. And then later in that same verse, I will blot out from the face of the ground. God is taking responsibility for the judgment visited. And if we understand justice, if we understand the requirements of justice, we will rejoice over the fact that God is just. But God is not only just, he's also merciful. He's a loving and saving God. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. God's judgment is almighty. It is just. It is balanced. This is not God flying off the, hand, off the handle and losing control of himself this is God doing what is required. And God is merciful. He's, he's a renewing. He's a God whose judgment, whose justice is renewing and transformative and creative and powerful and awe-inspiring. And a God like this is a God who is worthy of our, of our worship. We can recall the fact that God made everything good, intending to fill the world with his glory. And through our sins and schemes, we filled the world with violence. And then the Lord revealed himself to Noah, and Noah believed. And meanwhile, as, as Jesus and 
Peter indicate in the New Testament? The wicked are scoffing in response to what Noah is doing. But Noah is, is building the ark and he's gathering the food. And then the obedient beasts, they come to Noah. And then the fountains burst open, the fountains of the great deep. And the windows of heaven opened. And the waters rise. And the joins, that, that ancient construction, they hold And the pitch proves to be waterproof. And inside that ark is dry as it begins to rise. For 40 days and 40 nights, those waters prevailed as the ESV renders it. The judgment was total. The wrath was destructive. Pointing forward to another judgment that will be total. Another wrath that will be destructive when it is visited. In Noah's day... All fled, all tried to swim, all sank, all died. Noah believed. The ark floated on those waters. Noah could testify. Shem lived to tell that God is good, God is just, God is right, and his word is true. That first world was baptized in waters of wrath as justice rained down like a mighty stream. The Red Sea parted and Israel passed over on dry ground. They went right through those waters. And when Pharaoh followed with all his hosts, those waters closed. And Pharaoh and his hosts sank as a stone. But Israel was baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And then Jesus came and fulfilled all things. He drank the cup. He bore the wrath. He was baptized in the waters of judgment, crucified for our sins. But he rose. He rose on the third day. And Jesus said that he would come again, and he compared his second coming to Noah's flood. And we know that the fire is going to fall, that justice is going to rain down. The Son of Man will come as lightning across the sky, and the trumpet will sound, the dead will rise, and the Father will roll up the heavens, and everything will be made new. Every word of God proves true. And so our invitation is to sinners to come and see the crucified and risen King, to come behold this wondrous mystery that He would die to pay for our sins, that He would rise to save us to the uttermost, that He would call us to turn us to His way. And we have the opportunity to take Him as our Lord, to receive Him into our hearts, to sing His praise, for He is risen risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this this grand drama that goes from creation to new creation. And Lord, we thank you that you have done for us something like what you did for Noah. You have told us beforehand what will take place. You have revealed to us what you will do. Lord, we pray that you would make us like Noah, that, that we would be seen righteous, and also that we would do everything that you have commanded. 
Lord, we pray that you would cause us to do everything in our power to build the boat as we do everything in our power to be used by you in the building of your church. Lord, we love you, and we want to see your name made great. We want to see the new heavens and the new earth filled indeed with your glory from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting. And so we pray that you would fully and completely convince us of these truths. We pray that you would work in our hearts and cause us to want what you have commanded, cause us to love what you have revealed. Make us your people, Lord. Be our God forever. We praise you in the name of the risen Christ. Amen.